0: I'm your host, Krista Lusage, and welcome to Just Be, Matters of Justice and Biblical Equality, where we are encouraging listeners to consider the value, equality, and potential of all people. We are continuing to study what gender equality means in Christian contexts in light of the teachings of the Bible. Today, I'd like to start off with a quick personal story because I have a feeling that at least a few of you out there might be able to relate to it. About 10 years ago, I met with a pastor friend and let him know how I've enjoyed attending his church. But I also told him how I felt concerned that the teaching, preaching, and leading ministries of women seem to be missing from the church context. Is this intentional? I asked him, hoping to receive a different sort of answer from the one I was about to get. He graciously and confidently opened up his Bible to 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, where Paul writes, "'I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He then explained to me that scripture requires that women not have any authority over men in the context of preaching and church leadership. He explained that women can lead ministries within the church as they often do with women's and children's ministries, but with the oversight of men in official leadership positions. He felt confident that this is a universal rule and not just a contextual issue that Paul was dealing with because in the verses that follow, Paul grounds his argument in the reference to the deception of Eve as this being proof that women in general are more easily deceived and therefore need the wise guidance of men whom God put in charge. Well, I knew in my heart that this was a misguided interpretation, but like so many of us, I didn't have a clear explanation of this passage available to me at the time. I wish I knew then what I know now. I could have offered an explanation to what the Spirit was stirring in my heart. I know that he, along with many other pastors, care deeply about what the Bible teaches and care about the women in their churches as well. So I hope that these episodes can shed light on some fresh perspectives on this issue. I hope that people on all ends of the spectrum will want to listen and learn about the language, context, and meaning of this particular chapter of the Bible. I have read so many books in preparation for this episode, and I'm just going to try to do my best to bring you the best of what scholars in recent years are helping to reveal in 1 Timothy chapter 2. One such scholar is Dr. Cynthia Long Westfall, assistant professor at McMaster Divinity College in Ontario, Canada. She has worked extensively on this and other relevant passages in the New Testament. Along with other texts, we'll be referencing Westfall's book, Paul and Gender Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women in Christ, which received the Book of Merit Award from Christianity Today in 2018. Some may wonder why we would question the nuances of traditional interpretations of this passage, which seems so clear. But as you'll see, translation itself is an interpretive process. In fact, most people don't realize that there are actually more tools available today to help translators understand the ancient Greek of the New Testament than there were in generations past. Resources like the Nag Hammadi Library of Ancient Texts discovered in 1945 and the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered between 1945 and 1956 and a first century novel called Xenophon of Ephesus help us to get even closer to the original intent of these passages. Westfall writes, There is now ample evidence that was not available to the 19th century lexicons, which we tended to depend on for our glosses. The database, search engines, and linguistic theories are now in place to move forward. The church has reached its age of accountability. There's a fairly simple reason why the explanation I was given about 1 Timothy 2.12 is flawed. The Greek word used here that we have translated as authority is not the usual word that we see for authority, which is exousia. Instead, the word used is authentian, which is better understood as dominating or usurping power in an unjust or threatening way. Broxy Cavey of The Meeting House sums it up in about a minute, so I'll let you hear how he explains
1: it. Paul talks about a woman assuming authority or taking authority over a man. He doesn't use the usual word for authority. In fact, the word for authority is used uh, over 100 times in the New Testament, the normal word for authority, exousia. Paul uses it over and over again when talking about authority. Just means to have authority over. And then here, when he addresses it, he switches and uses a different word that he doesn't use anywhere else in the Bible. It's not used by any author of the Bible. It's only used once in Scripture. Why does that matter? Because usually when you're trying to figure out how to interpret a word and what its root meaning is, one of the things we do is we say, well, how is that word used in other passages of Scripture? That will help us interpret it and translate it properly. And you can't do that with this word because it's not used anywhere else. It's not normal authority. We can say that. It is not normal authority. There's something, different about it. And so we have to go outside of the Bible and say, well, how is it used in other writings of that time? And what we find is that this is a word that is a few stages more aggressive. It is a, a unilateral seizing of authority as opposed to authority that's granted. The word is not exousia, the normal word. The word is authenteo. It comes from just uh, meaning the self, but also uh, antia meaning to, to arm, to be armed for battle. And so it means someone unilaterally arming themselves for a fight so they can seize control, an autocrat without any care of submission. And so something is happening with the women who are being led astray by false teachers. So at this point, you might think, well, okay, Paul isn't
0: against women having a benevolent type of authority to lead or preach. He's against this negative sort of forceful or domineering behavior. I think we can all agree that that isn't a Christian way to be, whether you are a man or a woman, right? If you're good with that explanation, then you probably don't need to listen to the rest of this episode. However, if you want to have a better understanding of the passage as a whole and understand the other instructions that Paul offers to the women and how it all relates to this issue of leadership, then you should probably keep listening. What I have learned and am going to share with you just gave me so many moments of revelation. What I used to read as a group of verses that just kind of seemed disconnected and unrelated and weird now makes so much more sense to me and helps me to confidently know that my original and uncomfortable understanding of this passage was so far from the full story. Okay, so since our First Timothy 2 passage references the story of Adam and Eve, it would probably help to start out by listening to episodes 2 and 3 where we discuss the creation and fall at length. In those episodes, we learn in Genesis chapter 1 that male and female are created as equals in the image of God and that both are given authority to rule and subdue the earth. In Genesis 2, we see that Eve was created from Adam's side, denoting a position of equal standing and equal substance. She would be his Kenegda, which means a strong help corresponding to. In a sense, Adam and Eve were the world's first power couple, and yet, by chapter 3, Eve is deceived by the serpent, Adam eats the fruit, and the consequences of sin are felt. Along with feelings of nakedness, alienation, and shame, Eve learns of the challenges she can especially expect to endure in a world tainted with sin, namely pain and childbearing and marital power struggles. We also work through some of the nitty gritty of those passages along with gaining some understanding as to how bias can play into Bible translations and commentaries. Knowing this helps us understand a little bit how the history of gender discussions has developed in recent decades. We should also keep in mind that throughout the Old and New Testaments, there are plenty of examples of women who are empowered to lead, hold positions of authority, speak authoritatively as prophets, follow Jesus, and are commended in their work to advance the gospel in the early church. Despite the general pattern of male patriarchy that we see present in the cultures of the Bible, women are portrayed as key players in leading both men and women to do the will of God. I look forward to highlighting these women in future episodes. Within the New Testament, a certain uptick of female voices, involvement, and concerns are prevalent. While custom would have it that Jesus would have little to do with women, Scripture brings attention to his involvement with them as his students and friends. In fact, the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection are women, and T. Wright likes to call them the Apostles to the Apostles. In Acts, Peter declares the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, that in the last days God would pour out his spirit on all people, that sons and daughters will prophesy both men and women. Acts also tells us about several prominent women of the early church, and in Romans 16, the apostle Paul lists off several women who were key in establishing the church in Rome, including Phoebe, who is the only named official church office holder in the whole New Testament. I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-15 through 15 in the NIV in a minute, and then we'll go through verse by verse and work toward an understanding of the passage that is both consistent with the rest of the teachings in scripture and with the sociocultural context of the time. I'll also note that there's a heading in many translations that says, Instructions on Worship, and this has misguided readers into reading this passage as being relevant specifically for the church setting. When you read chapter two on its own, without the heading, it does not make sense to infer that he is speaking specifically about a so-called church or worship gathering. Also, to provide some context, we'll know from the opening of the letter that there were problems in Ephesus of false doctrines, myths, and so-called endless genealogies, which were, as Paul writes in chapter 1 verses 3 through 7, promoting controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith, and that some had departed from the truth and turned to meaningless talk and desired to become teachers of what they do not know. So to recap some points so far, we have better linguistic tools available now to help us understand some of these more difficult passages. We have a presence of strong women serving God through various leadership capacities in the Old and New Testaments. And we have some background information available to help us see that there was indeed an issue of false teaching being addressed to the audience of 1 Timothy. So here we are in chapter 2, starting at verse 9. It says, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, or gold, or pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. You do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, so verses 9 and 10 speak about dress. Paul urges women not to adorn themselves in an ostentatious way with elaborate hairstyles, gold, and pearls, and should dress in a way that is appropriate for women who profess to follow God. It's easy to think that Paul is simply advocating for cultivating a low-key sense of style that doesn't flaunt wealth. It's probably that, but it also speaks directly to a specific style involving hair, gold, and pearls. What's the deal, Paul? Are you saying that women should never look nice or wear a little bling? We can't be snazzy? Well, it might seem that way, and I think that making socially responsible and modest fashion choices is a good idea for Christians. However, we can learn that this sort of style with the hair and the gold and the pearls was actually associated with the worship of Artemis. So let's back up and talk about Artemis. We know from Acts 19 that worship to Artemis here in Ephesus bore serious social and economic outcomes for the Ephesians. There actually ended up being a riot there because newly converted Christians disrupted the economy which centered around the selling of these Artemis silver trinkets. The temple to her, called the Artemisium, was so vast and impressive it was actually considered to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. Not only did the cult promote false notions of of female superiority, it also contributed significantly to the economy of Ephesus as a whole, which was considered the richest province in the Roman Empire. It should be noted that the cult of Artemis was a female cult. Worshippers of Artemis were known to flaunt their wealth in the temple. Part of this included elaborate hairstyles that even involved the braiding in of gold and pearls. This was an intricate style that usually demanded the work of a slave or two. There is actually some historical evidence that suggests that this type of ornate hairstyle was also the signature hairstyle of a type of upper-class prostitute called heteroi in Greek. Lucy Pepe in her book, which I'll post in the link section, brings attention to Gary Hoag's work Wealth in Ancient Ephesus, which reveals that the specific Greek for hairstyle here, plagmasin, refers specifically to the hairstyle of Ephesian women who served Artemis as they imitated her hair and clothing. We know that the women of the cult dressed in imitation of Artemis with the significant feature of plaiting their hair in an elaborate and recognizable way. It is this that Paul is prohibiting the continued imitation of Artemis in dress and hairstyle. In addition to the Artemisian hairstyle, the costly clothing that Paul refers to was the clothing that the wealthy priestesses wore in cultic activities. So not only are these Christian women flaunting their wealth in an ostentatious way, but also this is a pattern of dress associated with the cult worship of a pagan goddess. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere. In a way, this makes sense. you got to think these women are new Christians and maybe they just think this is the way you're supposed to dress. Or in some way, maybe they actually weren't quite ready to give up the sense of honor they felt this fancy style afforded them. Perhaps this even signaled a reluctance to fully surrender past practices to this new Christian religion that welcomed all people on equal footing. It's important to look at verses 9 and 10 because it gives us some understanding that there was something going on with the women here. At the very least... The women were confused on how to dress or act, and perhaps it's understandable. After all, the women were mostly unschooled in the teachings of the Torah, which is what they would have had available to them. Jewish women were not given the same opportunities to learn the scriptures as men were given, boys went to Torah schools, but the girls did not. Anything they had been taught would have happened at home and likely by a mother or grandmother who also had never been to school. So you have a thriving local cult that embraces and elevates female participation in worshiping a female goddess alongside a tradition of Judaism whose formal teaching opportunities are offered almost exclusively to males. It's only natural that this would result in some confusion at the very least for the women here. So moving on to verse 11, Paul offers the antidote to this problem. Paul says, a woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. This may sound a little jarring in our modern ears, but what Paul is really emphasizing here is that women should learn in the same way that men were expected and trained to learn, quietly and respectfully. Richard and Kathy Crager write, in the view of typical rabbinic reluctance to teach women the Torah, Paul's decree that women should learn is an enlightened one. So there is no reason to think that Paul says this in a pejorative way. Let's hear a snippet of how N.T. Wright explains it.
1: The point about quietness and submission, I don't think refers to women being quiet and submissive in relation to men in the congregation. The word quiet is the word for leisure, which comes through as somebody who has time to study. Women have to be given, as the men might not want to give them, the leisure to study submissively, submissively in the sense of they've got to learn from God like the rest of us, and that then she must have the leisure to do that. But I'm not saying that the women have got to take over the leadership because Wrong. we're not like the cult of Artemis down the road.
0: We know from elsewhere in First Timothy that the women of this culture were taught the myths, genealogies, and old wives' tales associated with Artemis and other pagan practices. Chapter one, verse six and seven already tells us that some have wandered away from a sincere faith and turned to meaningless talk. They wanna be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And we know that the women of the cult of Artemis were accustomed to being involved in teaching the religion of Artemis. So it stands to reason that they may have prematurely assumed a teaching role even though their understanding of the Christian faith was probably weak at best. Okay, so now it's easier to understand why Paul needed to address the issue of women learning. We've also uncovered the importance of context, learned how fashion and hairstyles said something about a woman's devotion to God, and how this culminates in Paul's directive that women should become serious students. This all connects to the verses that follow that talk about authority, Adam and Eve, and pain and childbearing. So now let's look at verse 12. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. The verb form of permit that Paul uses is the present indicative. So some argue that it would be better translated as I am not permitting, which is an important difference since it implies a present situation and not a for all time kind of statement. So let's get a better understanding of what it was that Paul was not permitting. Well, it's this Greek word Authentian, which, when compared to other uses of the word in ancient writings, Authentian is never used to describe a benevolent sort of authority that a good teacher would have. We've already talked about this? No, it's always used in a pejorative way, as in usurping power, an abuse of power, and in some cases, this word is even connected to murder. So whatever is going on here in Ephesus, it's like Paul saying, I'm not permitting a woman to authentian." It's like when I find my 10-year-old daughter thinking it's her job to boss her younger brother around. I have to step in and say, I'm not allowing you to be the boss of your brother. I think we all know the difference of when a sibling is offering helpful and wise instruction or guidance to a younger sibling and when they are just usurping power for themselves in order to have a situation go their way. But why might Paul be saying this? What might be likely going on here? It seems like something problematic was probably happening with what the women were learning and teaching and in the way in which they were doing it. In fact, it is the follow up verses that offer us precisely an explanation to the nature of what was going on. Paul says in verse 13 For Adam was formed first, then Eve. We know that the cult of Artemis had taught that in creation, woman was created first as a mother of all humanity which led to other types of false teachings. So it makes sense that this was likely part of the false teaching being addressed in 1 Timothy. It's not that reasonable to impose on the text a category of so-called male headship based on the creation order. You can check out episode two where we discuss this at length. It just seems likely that a woman had probably wrongfully assumed authority and began to teach a distorted version of creation in which Eve gives life to Adam. It's with this in mind that we can better understand why Paul specifically mentions that women should learn in verse 11. It's as if he's saying the sheer lack of education is helping these false teachings to take root. It's time for a woman to learn. Paul adds to his point saying in the next verse, And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Was there a question among the Ephesian women of who was the first to be deceived? You might be interested to know that along with the influence of Artemis' worship, the practice of Gnosticism, which itself means hidden knowledge, was developing at that time in Ephesus. Gnosticism championed the value of so-called personal spiritual knowledge over the orthodox teachings of the Christian church. Such personal spiritual knowledge could be arrived at by chanting whatever came to mind. I wonder if this is what Paul was talking about in chapter 5 verse 13 when he warns about widows who talk nonsense or have meaningless discussions as in chapter 1 verses 6 or the foolish talk he mentions of 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 16. Within that context, the deception of Eve could have been viewed positively since, after all, the fruit offered her knowledge of good and evil, and knowledge is good. This makes sense as a possible scenario because what Paul goes on to say in the next verse is, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Once again, Paul appears to be correcting a false teaching that women had been propagating. It's quite possible that in the Gnostic tradition, that Eve could have been lauded for her fruit-eating mistake. And Paul wanted to correct this wayward creation and fall narrative that itself offered false notions of female superiority. Paul is not suggesting that since Adam was formed first, that this places men in positions of authority over women. He is also not suggesting that women, by nature of being female, are more prone to deception than men. It's not at all what he says here, or in any other passage of scripture. I hope we can put these ideas to rest. But getting back to the issues of Ephesus, in a way, it makes sense that the women in particular would be confused or misled at this time. Not only had the women received little to no theological training, as the men had likely received, they also had been instructed to trust Artemis as the goddess who would protect them through the phases of their lives, and especially during childbirth. Women here lived the very real threat of dying in childbirth. For generations, the women here had trusted Artemis, the goddess of fertility, to help them safely through the process of childbirth. With the maternal mortality rate being one in seven births, you can understand the fear associated with turning away from the goddess in whom you had once believed would provide safety in childbirth. The name Artemis itself is actually derived from the words for safe and sound. She even bore a title that is translated as savior. I can understand why it would be difficult for a woman to make this complete paradigm shift away from this lifelong cultural backdrop and completely shed all deference for Artemis. After all, she was a go- goddess of fertility and childbearing, and with midwifery practices being an essential pagan practice, you can understand why it might have been frightening to place your complete faith and trust in the gospel during a difficult labor. And we know that this is likely the context of what Paul is getting at, because in the very next verse, he assures women by saying, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That's from the ESV. Paul logically addresses the issues on the Ephesian woman's mind how to make the paradigm shift from being an Artemis cult follower to a follower of the gospel Paul redefines piety in this way it's not about your wealth your appearance your power but it's about your good deeds It's about taking the time to learn with a humble and sincere heart it's not about stepping in and fusing false religious understandings with teachings of the gospel it's about continuing in the true faith love and holiness even during the scary time of childbirth to sum it up Women should stop dressing like Artemis, priestesses, and prostitutes, and should get on with doing good deeds as true followers of Christ. They should eagerly and respectfully receive instruction and education. Women are not to believe that they are in any way spiritually preeminent or superior to men, as they may have been taught in the Artemis cult. It's wrong to think that Eve's act of deception was praiseworthy. Paul says get your story straight. It goes Adam then Eve and Eve was deceived. Learn. Then in verse 15 Paul reassures women that they will be saved through childbirth without the worship of Artemis with continued faith, love, holiness, and self-control. While women probably still died in childbirth, this is a general principle that they could rely upon their new faith in God. Additionally, Westfall points out that this is likely referring to the husband and wife partnership in bearing children. Consider the overall prenatal care a woman would receive if she and her husband practiced faith, love, holiness, and self-control compared to the health of expectant mothers in a marriage that did not. Keeping with faith, love, holiness, and self-control within a marriage are principles that indeed would improve a woman's overall vitality in pregnancy and childbearing. People have struggled to make sense of this verse in other ways. The word saved reminds readers of the idea of eternal salvation, so they have often tried to apply this meaning to the text. Even though it's very strange and kind of contrary to the gospel to assume that women will be eternally saved in part through childbearing, some have assumed that Paul must be referencing the birth of Christ, but that is also contrary to the gospel. It's not just the birth of Christ that brings salvation. It just makes so much more sense to read this as Paul reassuring women that the Christian marriage partnership of faith, love, holiness, and self-control offers hope in the uncertain time of childbirth. I just want to reiterate this passage. Paul is not silencing women. He is not prohibiting them from acquiring positions of authority. He is not unilaterally prohibiting them from acquiring positions of authority. He is not suggesting that since Adam was formed first, that this places men in a position of authority over women. He is also not suggesting that women, by nature of being female, are more prone to deception than men. I hope we can put these ideas to rest. Whew, we did it. There's a lot more there we could talk about, but I think that's good for today. I will put all my references for this episode in the show notes, so please be sure to check that out and leave us a review in your Apple podcasts. I'll end with a verse from 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and others. Peace.